0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Potluck Food Talks. Today, I have a special guest, my friend Luis. I can make a a very personal introduction uh, about Luis. I've known him for over 20 years. So I've seen his complete progress since he started working as a chef until now. Uh, He was already an, an engineer when he started cooking. Yeah. Then I visited him working and graduating from the Venezuelan Gastronomic Academy, SEGA. And next thing I know, he's sous-chef at Cosme, then chef Tugnanda at Blanca. And now he's running a place in Brooklyn called Ensenada. Yes. Which is focused on on seafood, cooked in the style of Baja California. And it got featured on the Michelin Guide this year as well. So what's up, Luis? <laughs> What's up, guys?
1: How are you doing? Thank you for having me here.
0: So, like, like, the main topic of Ensenada, we could say, are the aguachiles, right? Or or uh, at least a, a very important feature uh, in the menu.
1: Yeah. So Ensenada was born this year, beginning of this year. Actually, we I started conversation with my partner, Bryce, I would say like September 2021, just to explain a little bit about the restaurant. My partner, Bryce, he had the space already called Black Flamingo. So he had a vegan taco restaurant upstairs and then a nightclub downstairs. After the pandemic, of course... You know, all the rules changed. Basically, there was no the rules. He always had this dream, this idea of like having a coastal Mexican restaurant. And he was looking for a space. And And after the pandemic, because that Black Coming wasn't doing that great, you know, um, we met through a mutual friend, Maria, who used to be a bartender there. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to close this shit out. It's not working out. It's not what I want to do. I don't like vegan cuisine anymore. So you want to transform a space into it here? I'm like, uh, I... I I mean, I was never honestly planning on opening a Mexican seafood restaurant that was not in my cards, but I was like, oh, like, you know, I love to do that. This one loves to do a lot of Mexican food. Why not? You know, and then we switch up the concept. We kept the club downstairs. Uh So we still have a club Fridays and Saturdays. And we open in February of this year. It's been a nice ride. So we, yeah, we do, we call it a Latin American seafood, you know, concept. But it's not, I would say it's like 95% Mexican. I would say the Aguachiles are the backbone of the menu. It's my favorite part. So you have the Aguachiles and everything like stems from that.
0: Oh, Chile is a dish. I got to know it for the first time. I would say not so long ago, about six, seven years ago. It's the first time I, I, I heard about it. And I remember having one at uh, Hoja Santa in Barcelona. How would you explain it? And, and how is it different from ceviche, which is perhaps uh, better known worldwide?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, ceviche, the first time I heard about ceviche was obviously through the Peruvian cuisine, which has a very strong influence in Venezuela, where we grew up and like where I we went to culinary school. Like, you know about ceviche since you're a kid, you know? And as a Venezuelan, you obviously know when you hear ceviche, you think about Peru, you know? Ceviche is Peruvian, period.
0: But then, then it's funny because I would say that there is this own style of ceviche in Venezuela, in Caracas, yeah. For instance, I like the ají dulce, which is really characteristic uh, of Venezuelan cuisine, and you won't find that in Peru. You won't make a, a, a ceviche without it in Caracas. That is true. That is very true. What type of pepper do they use in Peru? Uh, ají amarillo, usually, and, and rocoto. It depends. No, and ají limón. I, I think that there are like different, yeah, different approaches.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's crazy because I always thought. Because, you know, that's how I learned to make ceviche. Ceviche was fish, lime juice, red onion, ají dulce, and cilantro. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I always thought that the Peruvians had ají dulce as well. And I thought I was like, okay, this is Peruvian. And then, you you know, you start like doing research. You start traveling. You start seeing other things. You see how they use like the sweet potato. They put the sweet potato in it. There's a version with the hominy corn as well, you know, and the rocoto and the amarillo and all that. So it's interesting. Turns out. Mexicans have ceviche as well. And their ceviche is pretty interesting cause it's like, the fish is like mad cooked. It's like marinated for days in, in the lime juice. So it's a fish that is like, I mean, in my opinion, overcooked, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a, that kind of ceviche that, you know, you would take to the beach with your friends. You like mix like a bunch of fish with lime juice and onions and peppers in a cooler and they bring it to the beach. Uh And then you eat that for like three or four days, (laughs) (laughs) you know. So the ceviche I make at the restaurant is more towards Peruvian flavors than the Mexican. Uh, Me and Bryce went to Ensenada back in May to do some research to eat.
0: Ensenada is
1: a, a region, a village. Well, what exactly? It's a city. It's a city. Okay. It's about an hour and a half drive south from Tijuana. It's like a road city, you know, like, and it's a big port. To me, it was like a very ugly, a lot of like outlaw kind of vibe, you know, like renegades and all that shit. They go to hide there, <laughs> strip clubs. They have the two bars that they both claim that they invented the margarita. You know, it has like an interesting culture, but the food is like next level. So about the ceviche there, it's interesting because the traditional ceviche is nada they put the fish in a food processor. So they basically make it almost like a puree okay. of fish. Very, very blended. Put the lamb juice and you basically end up with like canned... Fish texture, like you know what I mean, and then they spread that on a costada. That's the ceviche. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah.
0: Because in Peru, it's quite common, like the the leche de tigre, which literally means tiger milk. Yeah. Uh, The the marinade for the ceviche, it's quite common to use like fish broth and 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 this kind of things, pieces of the fish, and mix it with vegetables and lots of lime juice and chili.
1: Yeah, that's so. That's what I do at the restaurant. I do a leche de tigre for the ceviche. We have like el la vida as well. So yeah, the leche de tigre is basically a, that this is the way I learned it. You incorporate all the elements of the ceviche into a blender, including pieces of fish. You do a fish stock with the bones of the fish. That's your base. And then you blend everything up. And that's your like juice for the ceviche along with the live juice. The ceviche itself is the pureed fish. And then you basically add a like a sashimi to it. Not even. No, no, no. No, no, no. That's a ceviche.
0: No, no. But I mean uh, at Ensenada, you put like uh, pieces of raw fish on top.
1: Ah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like in Ensenada at the restaurant, I mix it with raw fish. Exactly. Yeah. Very lightly marinated in lime juice. So it's barely cooked on the outside. I'm not a fan of that super like cooked in citrus fish, you know, i rather keep it raw.
0: That's also something I learned, as you said, many times when, when you learn ceviche from home cooks, you get to hear this marinated for some hours or this kind of things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And when I went to Peru, like in ceviche bars or, or even in, let's say a, a buffet in a hotel, you will have like a ceviche chef. And he will mix it in front of you and serve it to you. So the fish is going to be just a few minutes in the marinade. And, the, and that's also the way I like it. And that's the way they do Agua Chile in Mexico.
1: You know, Agua Chile, like you were asking about the difference between aguachile Chile and Ceviche. Agua Chile, first of all, is very slightly marinated fish. So it's like pretty much raw as like the Peruvian Ceviche and usually spicier. And then you can do many types of it. As I understand it, Agua Chile originates in in Sinaloa. It's a Sinaloan dish that actually started as a... It didn't even start as a being a seafood dish because they what they used to do... uh, So it's in the Sinaloa multis. Obviously they didn't have any fish. What they did was boil meat with chiles. So it's, it's literally water, agua, and chile, chili, you know? So they boil the meat in like this chili broth, basically. And that was the birth of the Aguachile. Eventually, when, you know, people started immigrating down to the cities and to the coast, they started incorporating this recipe into seafood, you know, but Aguachile is a very, like, uh, this is as far as I understand, very humble and, you know, poor people recipe that started out as just like boiled water with chilies. And sometimes I read somewhere that sometimes people didn't even have meat, you know, to put on on the dish. So it was literally water with chilies they have this thing called, uh, this hueso, hueso paseado, where it's just like a bone of meat. And then you pass it to the different dishes to at least get some like of the meat flavor. And then it was just like water, Chile and they eat that with tortillas. That was it.
0: You mentioned before uh, Vuelve la Vida. I would like to make a, a zoom on that. Vuelve la Vida is something you get in, in Venezuela when you go to the beach. And these are usually like street food vendors and they usually have Vuelve la Vida, Siete Potencias. I don't know if it's the same thing with a different name, but there are like this variation of uh, basically is Boiled. Seafood, seafruits, like fruto di mare, where there are lots of things they put to it, like, like ketchup, uh, Worcester cherry sauce, yeah, Tabasco, lime yeah. juice, uh, I don't know what else. Well, what's your version of it?
1: So my, the version I do at the restaurant is the Venezuela one. These little, like, variations of things, it's like why well, we don't dare to, like, really call it a Mexican place, although that's where we're, like, labeled. But, you know, the Huelva la Vida is one of those hints to Venezuela that I like to keep because that's, that's what I grew up eating. I learned later. We had it in Ensenada. We used to do that at Cosme. Like, there's a Huelva la Vida in Mexico as well. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And you can find it in Ensenada, in the city. You can find it in any, like, you know, those seafood food trucks. In my experience, from what I had or what I tried, is way like, you know how Huelva la Vida in Venezuela is it's like a little thick because it's traditionally used, made with ketchup. Mm-hmm. The Mexican version is way more loose. It's more watery. I don't think they use ketchup in general. I think it's more like a clamato base cocktail. And then they use this, like, you know, a little Valentina, a little Cholula. Uh-huh. That's the spice they use for the cocktail versus us using like ketchup as a base. I do Worcestershire. I do lime juice. I do vinegar, a little pureed onion and garlic and cilantro chopped in there. And what kind of seafoods do you use for, for the Huelva la Vida? So basically your menu is relatively small, but then you can do any aguachile, any ceviche, any Huelva la Vida. You can do either just fish, you can do either just shrimp, or you can do a campechano, which is a mix of all the seafood that we have available. So you can do a scallop, octopus, fish, and shrimp.
0: Basically, you build your marinade and your fish and, and you build your, your own combination.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, what is like three, four dishes, it, it end up being like 20 different dishes that you can play with.
0: Uh, a unique thing uh, about the place is the vibe because... Uh, it doesn't feel luxurious at all. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't feel casual either. So it's like you, you feel you're like in a well-prepared uh, restaurant, but whatever the, the waiter is, is wearing sneakers. Yeah. And and that's coherent with a restaurant located in Brooklyn, uh, at least for me. I was with a Basque friend and she wouldn't eat so much uh, spicy. So we had like the the less spicy version of it, which was still a little bit spicy. <laughs> but still, she said she, she would uh, happily return with her family if she's back in New York. I think it was, could it be scallop or, or you don't serve scallop? I, I think I have the memory of, of scallop in my aguachilla.
1: We do have scallops here. We do have scallops. There's uh, So we have a scallop tostada that is not traditional at all.
0: Ah, yeah, exactly. The scallop was in the tostada. Yeah, that was, that, that was amazing, that one.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I do it like so it's a base of labne. ross scallops are marinated with uh, a sauce that I make with toasted seeds. Like I call it salsa seca. So it's basically this bunch of seeds that have been fried in olive oil with shallots, garlic, and a little bit of a uh, pepper flakes. So I don't know. I think there's some Italian about it. And then just like a little julienne of hickamon, green apple on top and something else. So let's see.
0: Where do you get your products from? Uh, like in general, like your fish and seafood? I work with two
1: purveyors that have been working here in New York for years. And they're, you know, like very well known in the industry. One is called Lipper Sons, basically run by this amazing lady called Sherry, I think it's second generation. Her father started the company based in Long Island. You know, they're like Jewish from Long Island and it's crazy how she, it's basically like a one woman operation because she no matter where she is, like you see her Instagram and she's in fucking Cancun on vacation and she's taking the orders. Like you text her at midnight and she says, thank you. And she says the order the next day. You know what I mean? We get a lot of like fish from Long Island, Montauk, New Jersey. So she's kind of like my local fish purveyor. And then I work with another one called AquaBest. Base. They're based in Chinatown and they're like third generation also. So the kids are running the place now that their grandparents found them in Chinatown. I would say he's more globally Oriented, like, he's like, yo, like, like I go there and check what he has. And so he's like, yo, I got a plucking Uh I'm go, I'm flying there tomorrow. Uh, like, you know, we're, we're trying to get local fish from there. So I'll tell you what we have. So anything you need, like, you know, like we can like fly like overnight, basically, you know. So what I get with them, I get the octopus from Spain. I get some uh, very, very nice blue shrimp from South Asia, Southeast Asia, you know. And then he have like Japanese stuff and like all that. So I play with the both of them, you know, based on what they have. Our idea with the restaurant was to, uh, I think we, we thought it was going to be more casual than what it became. It was going to be more like Tasca vibes and you come in and the, you know, it's loud and like the presentation doesn't necessarily need to be like. As nice, as perfect, and like I I don't know why, just organically. Or GM Jen, uh, she also worked with me at Cosme, and uh, she's working like Michelin star places. So she's got like a the, her standard of service is a little, little higher than we anticipated. Like we we started out with like paper napkins, and now we have like linen napkins and those kind of things. And like we resettled the plates for every course. You know, we were never like thinking about having like a course style meal. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Basically, like the reference we had, like when we opened the restaurant, we like most of the reference we had was like Agua Chiles places in New York, you know? And we kind of want to do like that, but with our twist of flavors, and like kind of being like not like, oh yeah, we have the, you know, the green and, and red Agua Chile. we want to like push a little bit further, especially when it came to flavor. So it organically became this scene that you experienced that it was like, kind of like a nice restaurant, but not fancy, you know? And uh, um, kind of like good service, but not like uptight. You
0: know, mm-hmm. and uh, another dish that, that we had uh, that was super fun to eat uh, where was like uh, this appetizer that was like uh, tortillas with eight different sauces. Yeah. Like, are these like all Mexican sauces yeah. or are there also like, like twists from other places?
1: No, those are just like straight up Mexican sauces that I learned with the years, like with my time in Cosme, we like going down to Mexico and eating, I just like looking up books and recipes, you know? So they're very like, I would say like standard. You know, like, like traditional Mexican sauces. We have the matcha, which the matcha is like, a, is has been, uh, I wouldn't say controversial, but it's, it's been like in everybody's mouths in the past couple of years in New York. Like everybody knows what it is at this point.
0: What is it exactly? Salsa matcha. So
1: salsa matcha is a, is a very typical sauce that consists in dried chilies that are fried in oil and they just process with any type of nut or seed. So traditionally, it's like the, the one I've seen the most is made with peanuts. And then you usually have a smoky chili in the mix. So it's either morita or pasilla mije or, or chipotle. You know, it's got some smokiness to it, but they, there's like a thousand different ways that you can go about it. You know, you can do you can do any type of nut, you can do almonds, you can do peanuts, you can do all those. I remember there was this, one of my uh, friends from Cosme Milton. He's a sous chef there now. He started like a matcha business during the pandemic. Oh wow! Well. He was called to matcha nyc.com. and it was I mean, I tried a couple of those, and they were pretty good. And he would like do a new recipe every week, so he would come up with like saltflower seed uh matcha this week. We have a pine nut one. This was the
0: one with pumpkin seeds in your version?
1: Oh no that, that that's the sickle pack. So that one is uh like a like a s Mayan recipe that is basically more like a dip. Has sickle pack is like Mayan for I don't remember what, what it stands for, but it's like tomato and pumpkin seed basically. So it's basically like a dip, like a spicy dip. Uh that's one of my favorite sauces.
0: Yeah I remember that one. And the other one that I remember that was addictive was uh, pineapple butter that came with the yes. with the fish al pastor. The fish was cut like in a in a butterfly and then brushed with an adobo, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, roasted and then some vegetables on top and the pineapple butter.
1: Yeah, that pineapple bone the man that's he like, everybody loves that. Like everybody like leaves the restaurant talking about it because it's it's just so good. That's that's a recipe that I stole from Cosme straight up. I can take credit for that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a classic, a classic from Olvera, if I'm not wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think he had it at Pujol. He used to do like a tataki, so like a barely seared fish. So actually, like that's the first time I saw a pastor. Recipe not being applied to pork. Mm-hmm. Like he was the first one I saw him doing it. And then we did a version of Cosme when I started there back in 2014. In the opening menu, it was a cobia, tataki, al pastor. And then it came with this like pineapple puree and just like this baby pineapple slices on top and then tortillas on the side. So basically the Brancino is my kind of like my ode to that, you know, like seafood restaurant. Uh, Mexican, you got to have some peach al pastor, you know, and then like everybody does it now. Like I remember there's a restaurant here called Taqueria Ramirez, which is pretty good. It's like one of the, I would say probably the only taqueria that I know in New York that actually does like Mexico city style, you know, the choricera, they throw everything in, they cook everything in the lard and then just like put in the taco. That's it. But they did a pop-up uh, a few months ago and uh, they did a monkfish al pastor and they made a trompo with monkfish pieces rub al pastor with a pineapple on top which was very interesting. So there's people doing creative stuff you know there's people like switching it up.
0: Yeah another dish I wanted to ask you about and I I, I couldn't have that one I, I already ate too much at that point What's the, the soft shell crab uh, what what can you say about that dish? Oh yeah I, I, that, that's gone now because that's uh, soft shell
1: crab it's in the summer, it's in every restaurant in New York. That's one of those like staple, like East, North East Coast thing that like, I mean, it's so good that it's hard to not put it on the menu. And there's like a million variations. People usually fry it. That's that's the one I've seen the most here in New York. So basically the season, I would say it's like mid-July to mid-September. It's really a short season. It's when it's warmer. It's when the crabs go out of the water and they start like changing the shell. So at that exact time is when they catch it. And, you know, it's like member-like, like like texture. You touch the shell and it's like soft, like jelly.
0: Yeah, like a cartilage, something like that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So like kind of like chewy, but like kind of crunchy also depends on how you cook it. So you can eat the whole fucking crab. Amazing. You know, summer is a very interesting season for restaurants in New York because you have everything available. You have the best tomatoes, you know, you have the best seafood. So I did a version. It was crazy because I was trying to do a Thai papaya salad version with social shell crab. I mean, Thai food here is big and it's one of my favorite foods to eat when I go out in New York. There's so many good places. It was, an, it was actually, I did that dish by accident, honestly, because I was like trying to do a papaya salad with social crab, which I didn't want to fry. We were doing it like butter based on a pan, which I think it like preserved the like the crab flavor way better. You still get that like chewy, but like also crunchy texture of the crab, you know. And I remember the papayas that they came in and they weren't green enough. They were like kind of ripe. And I was like, damn, I, I'm not going to be able to. Pull this up, and one of my prep books was like, "Why don't you use melon? We have a shit ton of melon downstairs." And I grabbed like a honeydew melon and I shaped it like in the same way you would do a green papaya for a Thai salad, and you know, it became this like sweet and sour uh, and like salty dish that worked really well with the with the brightness of the crab. So it became being like a melon salad.
0: Yeah, I think melon works super well and savory. Yes, it's like a cucumber and and the sweetness is like the the one you want in a super sweet tomato Exactly So if you add salt and let's say olive oil or whatever, it works super well.
1: It was one of those like crazy good accidents that happened in the kitchen. And honestly, that dish was like created by mistake. And then what I did was like all the like the trimmings of the crab. I made a broth and I did kind of like a dashi. So that was like the base for the dish. And then just like you would do a papaya salad, you would toss the melon with some fish sauce, sesame oil, you know, lime juice, lots of serrano peppers, crushed peanuts, cilantro, onions, and then I would finish it with some like light blister gold tomatoes, which that's another thing that you can only find here for like a mall. For those who don't know, gold tomatoes, is like this little like cherry tomato that's yellow that I haven't seen anywhere else, but like northeast coast, you know, in, in the United States. And it's my favorite tomato ever. It's like the sweetest tomato you could ever try. So people go crazy about that during the summer as well. Like people do dishes that are just like softball tomatoes, you know, softball tomatoes everywhere. Softball tomato pizza. You see it everywhere in the summer.
0: One last topic I wanted to talk about with you is what we were talking just before the interview. Like, how has it been the reception from the public? You being Venezuelan and cooking Mexican cuisine, how do people perceive it? Are there any critics? How do you respond to them in general? I think that
1: subject here in New York, being the melting pot that it is, is is not really an issue. People don't really care as long as the food is good. And, you know, like you're like, Presenting a culture with respect, you know, like me being Latin American, I somehow, you know, feel identified with like, we went through like a very similar shit, you know, with all the colonization and all that. And I think I, I have a lot of respect for Mexican culture in a sense that I'm, I'm almost like envious of how well they were able to preserve the pre-Hispanic culture, like astronomically speaking, but like generally speaking, you know, they were able to like I don't know if there was like more documentation before the fucking Spaniards came or what was it, but like you you don't really see that in Venezuela. Like you don't really see when you try like Venezuelan food or Colombian or like you know, like I would say like South American food in general, like except for Peruvian, maybe, like it's way more influenced by Hispanic culture, yeah. than Mexican. I mean, you 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 obviously see the ingredients and all its, and like you have like the mm-hmm. Vera cruzana, which is basically like a clash of the two cultures, but like they pretty much cooking how they were they were cooking before the Spaniards came, you know, and uh, that's very admirable.
0: What's uh, the this dish you just mentioned? Uh, this Vera cruzana, well, chalavera
1: well, well. cruzana uh, is basically like a you know like bacalao and tomate, yeah, like is that? It's basically that.
0: Yeah, like, uh, the
1: Vizcaina sauce, something like that. Exactly. It's exactly like that. So for me, like, I always put that as an example that that's one of the few uh, Mexican dishes that, like, you can really see the Hispanic influence in their food, you know?
0: Yeah, for instance, for me, it's crazy. And it's something uh, I mention a lot is the Venezuelan ayaca, which is the Christmas dish, is basically a tamal with a stew that can be pork or some other meats. But this stew usually has red wine and raisins and olives, which are like super Eurocentric ingredients. Yeah. And and I think it it would be really interesting to make versions of that dish that are decolonized, you know, like you can uh, pickle some... Uh, let's say, almonds or whatever produce you, you can find in, in Venezuela and and get a very similar taste than the ones from olives. You know, you can replicate these kind of flavors without having to import them every time, which could be interesting.
1: Try to do like a pre-Hispanic ayaka. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. There are also all these myths around the ayaka and many other dishes, like how they were created, and most of them are probably invented.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you do that, then you have a tamal.
0: Yeah, (laughs) basically.
1: (laughs) When I went to culinary school with our founder, Jose Rafael Novena, rest in peace, we would have this conversation, like, you know, there was these two theories about ayaka where, you know, the main one that, and it's like, I think it's the most popular one, was that it was created by slaves with leftover product from like what their owners would cook. So then they would take like all this like leftover meat and uh, these olives here and there, and they've made the ayaka. And they say it was like a slave dish, but like then you think about all the um I mean like you know Mexicans were doing tamales since like before the fucking times. So also
0: the the other thing about the yakas is that the, the packages with plantain leaves yeah. and those came from Africa. And yeah. then you have the, the stew that is very Spanish and the tamales, which are uh, Native American. But
1: you know you know Mexicans do. I don't know if I don't know if, I'm not sure if they beat it from before uh Spaniards came, but Mexicans do tamales in wrapping plantain leaf as well. Uh-huh. There's two versions. There's the corn husk one and then there's this plantain leaf one.
0: Yeah, yeah we, which makes uh, perfect sense. Yeah, and th- that's also a clash of cultures, you know, yeah. knowing that the plantains came from, from Africa.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. They use a lot of plantains too. But I mean, going back to your question about being, you know, not being Mexican. I mean, I've gotten a couple of comments like I've got a like Mexican and it's from friends usually like people, Mexican friends coming in. And then they're asking, like, who here is from Ensenada? Like, what do you, will you call it Ensenada? And I was like, well, like Ensenada, first of all, like it means literally like an inlet of water, like an Ensenada, like it's not even the city. That's where the city is called Ensenada, you know? And second of all, like we said, like I've seen like a couple of reviews too, that says like food is good, but it doesn't feel authentic, you know? Which is like, I'm sure it's probably not like a Mexican person. (laughs) Like I've had better food in Mexico City, you know. And the fact is like, I'm not trying to necessarily make it authentic. I'm trying to make it as respectful as possible to the culture, to the ingredients. You know, we're in a time in New York where like you can find like any Mexican ingredient you want. So that makes it easier to do as opposed to Venezuela food, for example. That like finding some ingredients to like Venezuelan food is sometimes a struggle in, in terms of finding the products. So that makes things easier. But, you know, I've also like made it a point to like not necessarily be... 100% traditional. Uh-huh. Uh, I like come up with my own aguachilla and like we have an, an aguachilla amarillo in the menu, which is like aji amarillo based, for example. And I use turmeric and ginger and lemongrass, you know. So that's not traditional at all. But it's interesting to like play with those flavors.
0: Your chefs are from all over Latin America, right? Yeah, my
1: chef is Mexican. He's on his way out. I hired a new chef now that's Ecuadorian, but grew up in L.A. You know, so that's that's part of like what it is. But yeah, like I was saying, like here in New York, I don't think that's like a I don't think they crucify you for that because everybody's doing like like there's two Mexican restaurants. There's all this is only this three Mexican restaurants that have one Michelin star in New York. Two of them, the chefs are American. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I feel like I could open a Japanese restaurant if I wanted to, you know, like I don't feel that there should be these boundaries as long as you're respectful with what you're doing and 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 you're honoring the culture that you're offering you know
1: yeah that's all it takes and i, I mean i'm not really cooking venezuela food at this moment i'm not saying that i'm never going to cook venezuela food again but right now i'm like very invested in in learning more about mexican culture mexican food traveling there every year eating you know talking to people talking to people that are like trying to like import Here, you know, we have a very good relationship with the people that give us the masa. We get masa fresh every day from our friends at this restaurant called For All Things Good. They have a very good masa program. We get our tostadas from this other Mexican place called Sobre Masa. There's a couple that I met that have a company called Tamoa. Uh, they're doing also like heirloom corn, importing from Mexico and a lot of types of beans, a lot of types of chilies, you know? So for me, that's like what it's all about. It's like having that relationship and just like, moving like Latin American culture for Like I would say it's like, it's bigger than just saying Mexican or the same Venezuelan or just saying Colombian, you know? Like here in New York, there's like room for so much still, you know, hmm. that I don't think people are worried about all oh, these Venezuelans doing Mexican food now. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Potluck Food Talks. If you like what we're doing, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok as Potluck Food Talks. The show airs every Monday.